You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Mark Buckingham, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Generation X, Episode 2A, covering a period of Generation X from 1995 to 1996. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your Generation X host, Gabriel Bustamantes. So we are going to talk about the second epic collection of Generation X. And let me tell you, Gabe, I am so thrilled that Marvel is doing these Generation X epic collections on a pretty quick clip here. And so as of this recording, we have the third volume of Generation X coming out this summer and like they're plowing through all of the best material here. This is this is just absolutely fantastic. I'm so happy that they are giving acknowledgement to some of these lesser known uh, Marvel titles from the past. Yeah, I mean, it might be lesser known, but this series has a huge fan base. Like it's always brought up and anybody mentions any kind of like gem titles from the 90s or you know, gem titles from Generation X that are kind of lesser known. So there's a great fan base behind these. But yeah, you're right. Like Marvel's grabbing onto this and running with it. They're just announcing and releasing more and more of these volumes quicker and quicker, which is great. Great to have this stuff out here. Finally available in a collected form for the first time. That's right. Yeah, very, very great. And and honestly, I don't see Marvel really doing anything else with these issues, like maybe they'll probably give us an omnibus, I would imagine, at some point of the, especially of the Scott Lobdell, Chris Bocello era. Uh, like that seems like kind of a no brainer as those were, mm-hmm. these, these issues are some of the most popular stuff that happened in the 90s at this time. Um, but, you know, we're not going to ever see these standalone collections of like, here's the best of Generation X or here's this. Uh, you know, they don't have a Days of Future Past or Dark Phoenix Saga type of a story that's going to persist throughout all of history. Yeah, there's no breakout storyline yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. You either have to reprint all of it or none of it, I think. So I'm glad that they're deciding to do all of it in one line like this. Because this is I'm perfect. glad they're putting them out in order, too. Yeah. Where it's volume one, volume two. I think vol- the third one coming out is yep. volume three. That's so right. it's not... Well, here's volume one, then volume six, and then volume four, or anything like that. So they're <laughs> yeah. putting them out in order, which is fun, too. Well, and there are only 75 issues in this series, plus annuals. So there's not a whole lot. I mean, you could jump around, but uh, I mean, it, unless you want to actually start at a specific creator run, it doesn't really make much sense to jump around because there are so few issues in this. You might may as well just yeah. kind of go from start to finish. And it's not even really tied into much of anything. There's a little bit here we might talk to either in this episode or the next where it gets kind of tied up. Not even really tied up, but they mention some of the stuff going on in the overall Marvel Universe yeah. side of things. But the issues themselves aren't really pulled away or you're not, you are not you don't get like a crossover issue or things of that either. So it's pretty much, for the most part, like a straight read-through. Yeah, they get quite tied into the Operation Zero Tolerance story, which will happen in uh, Volume 3. And in this one, though, in this volume, Volume 2, 
the writer Scott Lobdell goes out of his way to remove Generation X from everything that's happening with the onslaught story that's happening in the rest of the Marvel universe. Like it's not, <laughs> we we feel the effects. Yeah, they mention it, but there is no onslaught that shows up or, yeah. or anything like that. You feel it with some of the things that happen with Emma Frost or yep. Chamber and things like that. But which is, <laughs> I think it's interesting because Generation X was born out of a big event. Right, yeah, it's true. With, with, with Phalex Covenant, <laughs> and then they're they're pulling them out or keeping them away from events going forward. Yeah, which is fine with me. At the time, I wasn't collecting every title, and I was like, thank goodness I don't have to collect all of the onslaught stuff to figure out what's going on here um so yeah that that's really good but we're that's actually something we're going to talk about we'll see the start of that in this episode mm -hmm. that we're going to talk about right now but the that all of that onslaught stuff happens in the second half of this book which we will tackle in the next episode but speaking of this episode gabe what what issues are we talking about today um so we're going to be talking about generation x 10 through 16 yep and then we're going to do the annual 1995 and then the uh, san diego preview yeah so this is still the era where chris Pacello is not the regular penciler anymore he has stepped away because he was going to do the uh, a sequel to the Sandman Death miniseries that he did um, earlier, but there were so many delays with that miniseries that he couldn't even get started on his work. So he they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And so it while he was only supposed to be gone from Generation X for four months, it turned out he was gone for a year. And that's a long time. And so we're, we are fed with a bunch of fill-in artists in this book here. Um, most notably, Tom Grummet, who yep. people know and love from his Superboy days. Uh, so he's here doing a lot of these issues, but then we also get a bunch of other guest stars and fill yeah. artists as well. We get, we get Bill Sienkiewicz in here, of all things, as well. <laughs> yeah. True. You know, as, you know, and then, you know, just having Chris Pacello away, and then when he comes back, it's like, oh, he was missed. Like, yep. it, there's really just this, okay, there's this change of dynamics when he comes back, and it, it feels back to the original issues again. Like, you can see a difference, or, or you could feel it, like the quality Absolutely. Like that's different. Yeah. And it's amazing that you can feel that. It's like, yes, this, we, we didn't realize how much we were missing this until it was, I mean, we knew that we were missing it when it was gone but tom grummet actually does a really nice job his characters oh, yeah. are are much more kind of round and and friendly than the way the chris would draw them uh and it's but his storytelling is still great and it's still pretty dynamic and such but yeah the just the same sensibilities his like that chris would have with his panel layouts um all of the background stuff the the way he does detail and it, it's just not there through these issues that we're talking about today so it'll be nice to have him back when we get to the next next episode oh, okay so Gabe, for fans who just picked up this volume, not having read the first volume, which, you know, why would you do that, people? Volume 1 is already out, and you, it's, you should definitely read it. But for if, let's say, they got this as a Christmas present, and they just want to dive in, and they haven't read Volume 1, what is the information that they need to know in order to get them up to speed? Okay, so Generation X is a the new generation of X-Men mutants. They are completely separate from the X-Men family themselves, as opposed to they have their headquarters, their school is in Massachusetts, as opposed to X-Men being in New York. Like I said before, they, were, they came out of the Phalex Covenant storyline. So we have characters in here like Sync, M, Jubilee, uh, Husk, Chamber, and Skin. 
And they all have their own different powers. They all have their own different kind of personal issues, which is one of the best things about this series is, is just the personal issues with the with the characters and how they interact with one another. Yeah. But some of the main things you need we need to know about this is Emma Frost is the co-leader, co-teacher, whatever you want to call it. So she came out of the situation that came out through the Hellion storyline. She's the co-leader along with Banshee. Uh, and one of the characters I didn't mention, which is I left kind of off to the side because, is Penance, who is this complete mystery of a character. She, at this point, is, she's not mute, but through the series, she's she's never spoken a word, really. Um, she doesn't really quite interact with the rest of the group. In the first volume, we did get introduced to, like, the Generation X's main protagonist, which is Implate. Em, uh, and DOA, who has a major connection that we'll talk about through this series, but it's really the connection b- between them and Penance with her razor sharp skin and her being mute that really kind of comes together with Implate and DOA that we'll get into with the rest of this. Right. Artie and Leech are a part of the group too, and they kind of have a hangout that they have within the. Uh, what the Generation X characters is a uh, danger room with is, is actually like this really cool kind of like jungle garden kind of thing. Yeah. But they hang out at. So they're a part of the team. They're not so much a part of this quite yet. And then we also, in the last volume, finally get introduced and it kind of shows up here a little bit more um, with our uh, Polynesian character, Mondo. And we'll get to more about him about that as well. But he's a new character that's starting to creep into the series as well. And that's really about it. There's not really much in the first issue or the first volume that really kind of cements into here yeah. um, other than just the characters and and who they are and things of that sort i think the, the only thing i would add to that is that mm-hmm. uh in issue number eight we've been getting like one page little snippets of mondo and his girlfriend cordelia on the on some polynesian island just relaxing in the sun whatever and in issue number eight mondo goes for a swim and he gets attacked and we don't know what happens to him after that and so we're going to see the ramifications of that in this annual that we're going to talk about first So that's all I want to add to it there. Perfect. So, yes, the first thing in this book is annual 1995. It was kind of odd that Marvel at this time, they were putting the years of their annuals rather than numbers. And maybe that makes more sense. That's typically how you would do it. Uh, in the UK, UK has a big history of having yearly annuals for a lot of their franchises, not even comic-related franchises. They would just have annuals that would come out um, that would have stories and games or whatever of, of their franchise characters. And they would always be like annual 1975, annual 1934, you know, that kind of stuff. And so Marvel seems to be adapting that, or they did adapt that in the 90s here by just calling this Generation X Annual 1995 it's called Of Leather and Lace, and uh, there's a short story afterwards, which we'll talk about uh, as well. This story has a lot of people working for it. So Scott Lobdell and Jeff Loeb are the writers of this of this annual. And then also we have breakdowns by, uh, let me see here, Ashley Wood and Sean McManus. And it's kind of weird that this is a a really long annual. It's like, how many pages is this? It's like 60 pages long. So that we have these two people doing the breakdowns, which means they're just kind of giving us the rough layouts. And then we have one, two, three, four, five, six people doing the finishes, which is very, that's like, that's a lot of people (laughs) working on one book. 
There's a lot, lot of a uh, lot of cooks in the in the kitchen on this one. And you can tell when you're reading through because the artistically the style changes like from page to page because I guess it's like whoever is free gets the next page or something like that. So right, and it's a pretty dramatic change because there's Bilson Cabbage is in here and he's doing Bilson Cabbage. Yep. And then you get I, I can't tell anybody else's art apart from one another, but it's it's a it's it's a it's a grittier change when you get the Bilson Cabbage uh, pages. You can tell the difference. Definitely. And then there's also like Steve uh, Steve Lytle, um, and he has a little bit of a gritty style, not as gritty as Bilson Kevich, but it's still gritty there. But then you have other people like Sean McManus and Vince Russell and Dan Penosian and Gary Callaner or Challoner. They, I've some of these names I don't even know. Yeah, I'm glad you looked up some of these first names. I didn't know. I was like, Wood is it? We're not talking about Wally Wood. Like, what Wood is that? So it's Ashley Wood. So let's see here. Let's keep on going. Uh, like you said, Bill Sinkevich does a lot of the finishes here. So his style kicks off this book and is very, very dramatic. The first page is this big pinup of a woman in lingerie, which we find out is actually Cordelia. And this is very different from the Cordelia that we had seen in just a few pages from the previous um, previous issues of Generation X that we've seen because she was cute and and a little bubbly and just full of happiness or whatever. But she's like... She's pretty much trying to be the white queen in this one. In fact, these first few pages tell us that she was the one who kidnapped Mondo, like attacked Mondo in that page in Generation X number eight, in order to use him as leverage so that she could take the white queen spot on the Hellfire Club. Now that Emma Frost... Yeah, she's also a white queen's sister. Yes, that's the other big revelation. Yes, her last Mm -hmm. name is Frost. And so like... We never knew very much about Emma's family history at all up until this point. And Generation X reveals not one, but we're going to find another of her sisters later on in this series. So that's kind of cool. This whole issue, the whole story, the, the purpose for this one is bringing Mondo onto the team. And so when the Hellfire Club doesn't um, act favorably to Cordelia's request, and in fact, then the Hellfire Club gets attacked and Mondo gets kidnapped because they want to experiment on him or whatever... She end up ends up going to the White Queen for help, and that's why Generation X gets involved. They go and track down the bad guys. They help save uh, Mondo, and then Mondo decides to stay on the team. And Cordelia, while the offer is open, she decides that she doesn't want to be anywhere near her sister. They don't have a very good relationship, so she leaves. She's a very conniving character in this in this story because she starts out trying to to negotiate with Sebastian Shaw to get onto the Hellfire Club, which doesn't work out. And then when she needs help, she comes back and tries to be like the kind of, uh, what would you call it? Uh, like the teenage little sister who needs help because she's stuck in a problem. Now she's going to come ask, asking for help from her sister, from Emma. Yeah. And that's kind of where this kind of turns into and where this story kind of takes off as well. And there's always been this thing in the X-Men world where siblings can't use their powers on each other. Like famously, Cyclops can't hurt Havoc with his optic blasts and Havoc uh, back at him. Uh, right. So Emma Frost can't read the mind of Cordelia Frost, her sister. But she knows she's, she's scheming. Like she could yeah, just like totally. sense it or smell it. <laughs> it's really great. Um, what I love about this issue is it gives us a good introduction to all of the characters. And we have the page count to do that as well. And so they spend time uh, talking about all of the different characters and kind of giving us an intro to their personal problems and what their power sets are. And uh, so if someone is just picking us up because of the flashy cover, which, by the way, I believe is by Michael Golden, the special wraparound cover here, uh, really cool stuff. 
Um, if someone's picking it up just because of this flashy cover, they get a good introduction to all of these characters. Yeah, it was smart for them to start this off with this issue. Yeah, that's I mean, true. It, yeah. it is storyline-wise either way, but I mean, they, they, they really took advantage of the page count, like you said, and gives everybody just some real ground-based rules of the characters and their dynamics and the team and the book itself. One of the things that was affecting the X-Men universe at this time was the legacy virus. It was a virus that was only attacking people with an X gene, as mutants. But one of the things that happened was that Moira McTaggart, a human, contracted the legacy virus, which made the entire world afraid, more afraid of mutants because now they didn't want to contract this deadly virus. So Moira is dying of the legacy virus, and there's a nice scene between her and Banshee. And this is now funny reading this now because, of course, because of House of X and Powers of Ten, we now know a big revelation about Moira McTaggart is she actually wasn't human the whole time. I always say that uh, I always have to give it up to uh, Jonathan Hickman on that because he made Moira McTaggart cool. Yep. Which is like an impossible feat, I thought, during <laughs> this time frame, during the 90s, where she was just the kind of go to semi pseudo scientist semi-suitable girlfriend for whomever, whether it's Professor X or, or Sean. Yeah, I mean, she was she was a useful character in that she was a the liaison also between humans and mutants because she had a relationship with both. And so, uh, and because she was human uh, or perceived human at the time, they used that effectively a few times to, to help bridge that gap. So, you know, I have some issues with some of the artwork in here. Not all of these pages look look great. And this was a problem with a lot of the annuals is that they never put kind of the top artists on here. So I like that they started with Bill Sienkiewicz to kind of give it some notoriety. But then you quickly devolve to some of the, the lesser known artists who are not as skilled in their craft. Um, but thankfully, I still enjoyed the story. It made up for it um, because otherwise, if the story wasn't good, I wouldn't be on top of this issue very much at all. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Some of the artwork's a little, you know, like you said, it's it's hard to compare when you got Bill Sienkiewicz, but it's it's pretty suitable '90s art for a lot of the stuff that you see in here. Too. Yeah, you know, it, it does the job. Does the job? Yeah, does the job. Yeah, I wish I knew who did what pages. It's it's really kind of hard to kind of figure that out. But yeah, it, it jumps back and forth with the art. But you know, the story is great, especially when we get to like the 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 diary stuff that's coming up in this issue as well. It's like really just interesting and fun how they how they pulled that off. Yeah, so let's talk about this diary, the diary of Monet. I think the very personal and very private journey journal of Monet Saint Croix, and uh, the art in here is by Jeff Matsuda. And I think before he was kind of a known artist, one of his, maybe one of his earlier Marvel gigs. What's interesting about this, I'm, if, if people are not following along with us with their copies or whatever, is this is, this diary is basically, that was made by Monet, is a coloring book yeah. of her backstory of the Generation X character's backstory. So again, we get like another really good recap and jumping on point to kind of get an idea of who these characters are through this really well done coloring book style of art. Like everything is basically single pages, like a coloring book, uh, big black bold lines, like a coloring book. And it's, it's drawn or it's, it's colored. It looks like, you know, with some kind of a crayon effect too. So it's really cool. And this book, there's a big secret about M, a big mm -hmm. secret. And there are clues on uh, a bunch of these pages about what the secret is. In the first episode that we recorded about the first volume, we were like, we can't give away the secret. We can't really even tell you what these things are that, that we're looking at because we want you to figure it on, on your own. But there's these first three pages with M at her vanity looking in the mirror and then her dad 
in the the playroom and the the page with the phalanx that all three of these have clues as to her actual secret that uh, she, that she's been hiding and she makes a, a hint at this secret in the very last page she's wondering if skin actually read her diary she said well not very polite of him but what if he did he'd be too embarrassed to tell the others that he read my diary and frankly He's not clever enough to figure out the St. Croix family secret on his own. So there we go. There is a secret. What is the secret? And that's that's a lot about this volume too, Curtis, is a lot of drops and hints. And we get it towards the end, we get the big reveal, but it's it's all mixed in throughout this entire volume. Yep. Is what's going on with Monet and her secrets and what she has in store for us later down the road and stuff. And it's really cool going back after you know the secret and reading these issues and going like, oh yeah, there you go. There's the hint. There's that. There's yeah, that. It was there the whole time. It was there the whole time, <laughs> right from the beginning. Okay, so that is our annual story. Let's move on to the first issue of our regular issues that we're talking about. This is issue number 10. Uh, Gabe, you want to give us a little recap of this one? Yeah, so issue 10 here, this is the issue where we finally get Mondo as a part of the team. It probably wouldn't have taken so long except for the, uh, when when Age of Apocalypse happened, we had a choice of uh, leaving Generation X out of it because it just started and it's like, are we going to like putting them in another book? You know, like just stopping and doing something else with them, we don't even know them. Right. And I think it turned out well, but it was definitely a choice, and in making that choice, it meant extending everything outward. So technically, without those four issues sooner, but like say he was, he was probably scheduled for like issue five, to be honest. But then when you mutant, uh, when uh, Age of Apocalypse happened, and then you know we came out from that, it just it just kept putting it off. And, right. You know, like right now, I'm I'm writing uh, Redhead and the Outlaws for DC. Mm-hmm. And about three months ago, they were like, hey, what if you did this story where the Redhead and the Outlaws battle the original Redhead and the Outlaws? And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And we planned it, but now we're up to issue 20, and I don't see it on the horizon. No room for it. Huh. And so that just kind of, uh, you know, it just kind of happens sometimes. You're, you know, right. planning, and it's like, okay, well, let's do this story. And then it just it never seemed like the right time to bring Mondo in. And so that's why it was so so late in the game. Okay. But you can see, like, in the, uh, when you look at the uh, Generation X previews and stuff, and that one, with the volleyball game. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's in there. <laughs> yeah, that would give you an indication that that's where, like, he was supposed to be, like, with them. Right. Just never, uh, you know. Wow. Uh, this issue is basically his coming home party issue, where they're setting up a party to celebrate his, is him joining the team, becoming a part of the team. And that's kind of the the framing sequence of the story. Beyond that, we get some drama with Sean Cassidy uh, being found in a kind of vegetative state, kind of a coma state. And then the rest of the story, a lot of it takes place within the, uh, a dream uh, realm where Emma Frost is involved invading his dream and figuring out some history on Sean Cassidy on Banshee. Um, some connections are made in here with Implate. Um, so this one is really just this really 
fun dream story that we get. And then we also get introduced, not introduced, but we also get uh, some Omega Red action in here as well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, some of his connections to the group as well. Yeah. Omega Red just appears in the last page. So we're going to talk about him a little bit in a little bit more detail, I think, in the next issue. What we should know about this one is that we saw a little bit of, of a backstory of, of Banshee in issue number seven, I think it is, where Emma Frost accidentally wandered into the the dream of Banshee that he was having that night. And we saw him as like a super spy or something like that. And he was like tracking down this person and someone dies and he's shooting his gun off or whatever. And she's like, oh, he's having a dream about being a, a spy. And then she, so in this story here, she goes into his dream and we see that he's having this dream again about him. He's got this really long ponytail and he's a, he's a, a some sort of secret agent or something like that. And it's fun. It's like, this is a side of Banshee we, we haven't seen yeah. really. It's him as a tough cop doing what other cops can't do. Yeah. Breaking yeah, yeah. All that's, the rules. that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's great. And um, Tom Grimmett is good at the of the action of that kind of action as well, and so you need to see. But there's also in in this dream sequence, he meets up with Magneto before he's known as Magneto, and Magneto calls him Agent Cassidy, and so they have some sort of big connection in the in the in the past. And Magneto tells Sean to go to Cassidy Keep because the killer that he's on the trail for is is at his home castle, and so. Uh, there we're going to make some very interesting connections that I don't know if they actually use in future stories, um, but we'll find that out pretty soon. Yep. And then also in this as well, uh, Penance is still in some kind of a deep sleep coma hooked up to a machine as, as well. So we got two members kind of knocked out. Uh, taking out of the game a little bit, and they're both on like respirators kind of thing. Right. So. Can I just say how much I love this party at the beginning here? Because even though it doesn't last very long, uh, what Scott Lobdell, I think he's always good at, is his dialogue and portraying the personalities of multiple people in one party scene. And so when they, when Husk and Skin walk up to the door uh, and they enter the room, everybody's there and they're in little groups and having their own stories. But you can tell all of their personalities through the dialogue and they're all unique and they're all individual. And it's, it's really, really, just really fantastic. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's a great just bringing, bringing the, the team together. And you can kind of even see how, you know, they're kind of who has not like a relationship relationship, but you can see that, you know, some people kind of break off into their own cliques. So they kind of have who's who's more of a closer friend to one another. Yeah. Um, and then you get Mondo on here, who's probably like one of the f- most fun, positive characters in the group that we'll probably get into a little bit more. But yeah, it, Scott Liddell and this whole storyline in general, you're right. It's really just bringing everybody together and explaining who they are without it being in your face. It's all very natural with the party. I wanted to mention earlier, I forgot about this. I I wanted to mention the quality of the reprints in this book. There are a few issues here that really suffer from oversaturation uh, of these scans. And I don't know why it happened, but they really, really bumped up the red in these issues. If you go back to the the, the original issues, the colors don't look like this. There is so much just red overlaid all of the pages of this particular issue. It doesn't affect every issue in the book, but this issue it does. And so this opening scene with with Skin and Husk uh, walking down the street, Skin has this like red tone to him, which is, he should have more of a blue a blue hue. But I don't know. They've messed with the colors, and this was something that happened in the first volume as well. 
and I was disappointed to see that it affects maybe about three or four of the issues in this volume as well. Yeah, and you can see Husk is, like, everything is very orangey. Yeah. You know, like, Husk is very orangey. Her hair is very orangey highlights. You know, there's there's a part here where Mondo's opening the door and his skin is the same color as the door. You know, things like that. So everything's very (laughs) kind of brown and yellow highlights and stuff. Yeah. And it's not even, like, every page is like that. So it's like, you you flip through the page, and then you have, like, Monet kind of floating in, in the air. That one looks pretty normal when she finds Sean passed out in front of the refrigerator. But then you get to the next page where she, like, you know, superhero speeds, saves him, and go, puts him into the the infirmary. It starts back up, and you get this all saturated coloring again. So it's yeah. very hit and miss in this. It is. And then the dream sequences is even worse, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Just, I don't know why. Just bad, bad scans or not paying attention. Not paying attention. So I don't know. If it ever gets a reprint, I'm hoping that they would fix it, but they don't tend to do that kind of thing with stuff they haven't like given the masterworks treatment to. Anyway, so the kids are on a little trip because they're, they're trying to find out uh, who's responsible for Banshee's coma, and they can track this psychic energy as Chamber, I guess, because he's also just a, um, a telepathic character. Uh, he can track the this energy, and it's leading them straight toward this swamp or whatever in the Berkshire mountains. And then they meet up with Omega Red. It seems like Omega Red is behind it all. And let me tell you, I have read a few Omega Red stories, but I don't really know a whole lot about this character. I didn't until I read this issue here. And I had no idea about any of the kind of the stuff he did, except for the tentacles that come out of his hands or his wrists yeah he's kind of a newer character at the time and then he appears here and we end up getting more of a explanation of how his powers work a little bit of a kind of a backstory with him and things like that as well so of all things generation x helped explain omega red a little bit more so let's talk about that we have issue number 11 uh and let me see what is the title of this one this one's called oh yeah death whale part two the other one was death whale part one uh, and Omega Red has beat up all the characters except for Chamber. Chamber's the last guy standing here. And so this whole issue is basically Chamber versus Omega Red, which is actually quite cool to see. A really good portrayal of how Chamber can use his powers, something that he's been very reserved about in these past issues. The second half of this is Banshee's dream sequence that Emma is following through Banshee's mind. And I think through this process, Emma finds out this is actually not a dream, it's a memory. This is actually some of his actual life in the past. And then we and we also get the scene that we saw in issue number seven with Banshee holding onto a woman's hand and slipping from his grasp and she dies. And he turns around and starts shooting at the person who's responsible for it, which we find out is actually Omega Red before he became Omega Red. So Yeah, that's so cool. You yep. know, that we made that, that connection here that Sean Cassidy not only had like inner entanglements with Magneto before he was Magneto, but also Omega Red as well. And just the kind of hidden secret in the big reveal of who Omega Red is in, in this uh, flashback dream sequences as well. Yeah, exactly. So Omega Red is a hired assassin back in this day for the Russian government. This is all Cold War stuff. This is the height of the Cold War. And he's been hired to take out some sort of world leaders or something like that. Or And then Banshee has been tracking him all this time. Just thinking that he's a, a, a serial, serial killer. killer. 
Yeah. That's right. But he was actually hired by the Russian government. And so they come to this standoff and Arkady, who's, um, that's Omega Red's real name, Arkady is, is saying, uh, I want you to kill me. My job is done. You can kill me now and um, my life will be have been fulfilled. But instead, Banshee just di- kind of disables him and, and he gets taken into custody. And from there, we find out that Ar- Arcady was experimented on, and that's why we have the uh, his, his increased bulk and the te- the tentacles that come out of his his wrists and all that kind of stuff is a result of this government experimentation that Banshee, if he had known, wouldn't have put him through that. So very cool yeah. ties to this character. And I, I, like I said, I don't know if they explore the relationship between Banshee and Omega Red in the future, but it's here for what it's worth. Yeah, I like how, I like how they uh, gave us the explanation and kind of the backstory of Omega Red and how his powers is just that he has like spores that he kind of, you know, brings out into the into the air which is just like a death virus that he puts out. Yeah. And he needs to use this death virus to kill other people in order for him to survive. Yeah. So he's a victim of his own like powers as well. So it's really, it's really fun how they kind of put that all together with this. It looks like his death spores can also kill instantly because that's what he does with the the woman inspector that Banshee tries to save. Uh, he just like sends his spores over to her and she dies instantly. Now, the little plot hole here is that he used his death spores on all of the kids as well, apparently, of the Generation X kids. But not good enough. <laughs> but not good enough. Exactly. So it's like, well, why didn't he just kill all of these people? But it's because they're the heroes of this book. We can't kill off yeah, our main cast. Because then we wouldn't have another <laughs> issue of Generation X. <laughs> uh, yeah. But Chamber, not needing to breathe, isn't affected by these death spores. Uh, so that's why he's the last guy standing. And that's why we have to have a face-off between Chamber and Omega Red. And I think that's cool to <laughs> face acknowledge. Off. Yeah, face-off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's cool to acknowledge the fact the chamber has no lungs here in, in that way that's kind of neat yeah because his power blew off basically the upper part of his chest and the lower part of his face so it's a fun two-part series right here and at the very end we get to finish off the party that we started and everybody's kind of back to the way they were here yeah so this last page the last page we see Mplate and doa they're kind of uh i don't understand exactly what i'm looking at here is like is this a certain mutant who can project the conversation that's happening in the Gen X room into wherever M-Plate is? I'm not sure. It's it's very odd how it's not very well explained. You know, I agree. I don't I don't understand what's going on either because you even have like word balloons inside of a bigger word balloon. So I'm not too sure how I guess somebody's able to kind of just somehow just eavesdrop and project it into him like you were saying. Yeah, and I think that's implied with the huge ears and the huge mouth of this character. But I also don't know, it's like, is this two characters? Because there's like one on the left side of the chair and, and a smaller one on the right side of the chair. Or is that left one just like a floating head that's supposed to be in a different panel? It's not clear how it's laid out, but it, it's uh, for some reason, Mplate is eavesdropping on the Generation X party. Uh, and he's got a plan that he's going to be putting into action. And in fact, we saw a meeting between him and this other character, Gail Edgerton. And that was in the last issue. We didn't mention it. So, and this is Gail, him and Gail talking uh, is uh, something that we saw in the one shot X Men Prime, which was kind of the startup after the Age of Apocalypse. 
And they showed the Gen X subplot pages in the previous volume, and this is kind of continuing on that story, and we're going to uh, see where that comes uh, up in the next issue. Yeah, we'll get some more of Gale coming up. Yep. Uh, but before we get to that, we have something kind of cool here. This is the San Diego preview, Generation X San Diego preview. It was a giveaway at the 1994 San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, before Generation X had debuted, it was like a, a just an introduction to the characters, but it has references to some of the stuff that's been happening in the comic over the last several issues. And so continuity-wise, it takes place right here between 11 and 12. Yeah, it's just interesting how they got that already kind of all this story already laid out, apparently, like a year more in advance. It's interesting because some of it is laid out and some of it is still kind of up in the air because there's one reference when when Jubilee is talking about Husk. It mentions um, about a week ago, the girl's dorm blew up. Uh, long story, but it wasn't my fault. And now I have to live in the science hall. It's like that did happen when Husk kissed Chamber and Chamber kind of exploded and blew yeah blew up the dormitory there so they referenced that but that didn't happen until issue what was it um eight i think issue eight and so if this came out before issue one debuted that means scott labdell had at least the first year mapped out already which is kind of cool thinking ahead yeah and it all it all fits together like this being a, a san diego comic-con giveaway it fits like it says right between issue 11 and 12 like it's it's, it's again it's another like introduction to all the characters so you get so far, we're about three, four issues deep into this, and we've already got two issues dedicated to like, hey, here's who all these characters <laughs> yeah, are. Yeah, right. It's true, but I mean, this is within the first year of any title, especially in the day before internet and stuff like that. It's like, if you're just picking up a random issue, we need to catch you up as much as we can. So they do put that information as... But, but this one serves a little bit of a different purpose because it specifically is a preview for the book. Um, this is drawn by Chris Bacello, which is so nice because, of course, he's not actively drawing the issues right now. So it's great to have this, you know, breath of fresh air <laughs> or a reminder of how great he is in here. Uh, there are some interesting choices. The whole framing is is Jubilee writing a letter to Wolverine, telling him about her experience with all of her new classmates. And um, I don't know if you've seen the little... I think it was an eight-page prologue that was given away at San Diego that year. Yep, where they're uh, playing volleyball. Yeah, and um, Jubilee is narrating at that, and and I, I I designed a very unique scroll caption, and the handwriting was based on John Rochelle's wife's handwriting, Starshine. You know, so there was we were always trying to bring in more human-looking, a, a human touch, because. The contradiction was that we were using digital fonts, yeah. but our goal was to make them look much more personal. So that the irony is, with the freedom of digital comic book lettering, we were able to make it look even more personal and perhaps uh, more uh, handmade. Nice. The one they spend the most time on is M. Obviously, Scott Lobdell has big plans for this character because he keeps hinting at the secret, and they do that here too. And let's see, she says on the fourth page, it says, 
For all of her smarts, referring to how intelligent she is, for all of her smarts, sometimes it's like she's in her own world. And then other times, she's totally perfect again. There's your clue about her, her secret in the future. They spend very little time on sync. It, he, she only says, probably my favorite is Everett Thomas, sync. But she doesn't say anything more about them. Does she, she doesn't <laughs> say his powers. This preview doesn't even state what his, like it doesn't show off what his powers are. It doesn't say anything. And even less about that is Husk. Jubilee mentions Husk and mentions that she leaves her skin all over the place, but she's not even in this preview at all. She's not even playing volleyball at the beginning. She doesn't make a single appearance. It's very strange. Yeah, she just talks about how uh, Husk is just like this crazy, she just studies and studies and studies. Yeah, but like not even show her, it's kind of weird. I mean, I, I mean, they show her hair because she's supposed to be asleep in, in a bed and, and Jubilee kind of tucks her in, but... Why not? Why isn't she part of the group? I don't know. Because she studies so much. She doesn't get to, she doesn't do things like play volleyball with the rest, apparently. Right. But again, yeah. for an issue that's supposed to be introducing you to people, yeah, you get no idea who she is until yeah. like the first issue, apparently. And then they even talk about penance and they talk that she's uh she says the one we know the least about is called penance, and she was always up and and around when she first got here, but she has had these relapses. I visit her a lot, which is something we've seen now in these couple of issues that we've read in this volume. But they don't show her in this preview because that's a big reveal at the very end of issue one. So they don't want to sh give away what she's going to look like here. Uh, and then the other thing that I, I just wanted to mention, one more thing here, it talks about Emma. It says the only bumness about this whole gig is that the former owner is still around. She says she wants to keep an eye on us, wants to help out the next generation of mutants. Emma Frost. Emma Frost on our side? Yeah, right. And I totally forgot that the school that they're in, the Massachusetts Academy, was her school for the Hellions. And now it's just the school for Generation X. I forgot that they it's the same building. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll get more into that about the Hellions and what happened to them and her reactions to that and how that affects the Generation X crew as well. Yes, definitely. Okay, let's go on to issue number 12. You want to take this one? Oh, yeah, good old issue number 12. So this is the big issue with uh, the return of Implate. Um, DOA and a little bit more of their kind of what their kind of uh, scheme is of things. But a major part of this also is again, we get a lot of this throughout this issue. So I hope everybody doesn't get tired of us hearing this, but it's a lot of inner character development here as well. So the whole, uh, the whole team kind of goes out into town on kind of like a, like a food, food run while chamber and, and skin go out and do their own thing. Cause this is the part where we get introduced again to to Gail that we kind of were speaking about before earlier and her kind of retributions and her kind of uh, connections with Chamber, her connections with Implate that we're going to be talking about as well in here. Um, and kind of just the whole idea of what kind of connection and need and want that Implate has. This is a big Implate issue. Um, his connection with Penance, and even the connection that he has with M that we'll get into that with this as well, yep. which is a really fun issue too. But a lot of this is again, just the team hanging out, going out for lunch, um, connecting with one another, Sean and Monet get their own kind of little like uh, moments in the sun here as well. And we'll get into all that as we talk through the issue, but man, this is a fun issue. I, I enjoy this guy. I like how they kind of just break themselves off into, into certain groups. So. Okay, before we go on, I, I realized that I forgot to mention something that I wanted to say in issue number 10, the first Omega Red issue here. Okay. It's on the like the 
fifth or sixth page, once M leaves the party, she's flying away. And this is before she finds Banshee unconscious in the kitchen. She says she's flying and she says all the chaos of Mondo's arrival and Penance's condition and all the melodrama between Paige and Jonathan is serving me well. No one seems to have the time to unravel the inconsistencies which my current incarnation presents. So she's dropping a hint there. Some more, some yeah. more hints there. Some more hints there. Uh, and I just bring that up because that's going to play. We're going to talk about that oh, yeah. in in these issues here as well, and probably more in the next volume because we get we get some of the some of the reveals here, but not much of the aftermath of it. Right. Now. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. So Mplate here, these first few pages is very interesting because Mplate is like, he's like going through some sort of dimension or portal where all of these hands are grabbing him. Yeah, he's like being tortured and then teleported through some weird portal of like hands and melted skin. And he's he's kind of on his last last leg of things. Like he needs a respirator to be able to even to breathe and survive. Um, and there's a lot of that going on too. This is where we find out that his mask that he's wearing is a respirator. We weren't really yep. too sure about that. It ties into his stomach, which like I don't exactly know what that means or how it works. It just adds so many questions. And even it says, DOA says, I feel compelled to note, sir, your treks to the beyond and back are getting progressively more traumatic. Like, what does that mean? Where does he go? I don't actually think that's answered ever. If not I... in this issue, yeah, or not in this this volume at all, yeah. And we don't even get any any real info about who this DOA character is either, other than him kind of being like his his chauffeur or you know, kind of like his kind of chaperone or whatever. But we don't really get much about DOA. He's such a mystery character too. Yeah, and Mplate is one of those characters that really, I think they only kind of bring him in to renew the copyright on the character, or the trademark on the character every <laughs> once in a while, because he is just not a major player. No one really cares about Mplate. So his, I'm pretty sure this whole thing about the beyond, the trek to the beyond and back never gets answered in the pages of Generation X. And I have no idea if it gets answered elsewhere. And then the other, you know, M play was just going to be her brother who was um, stuck. I think the idea was that he was stuck in another dimension. The only way he could stay in this dimension was to suck on the marrow of mutants, young mutants. And so that was the idea. And then the question became like, well, it's one thing if you're a vampire and you're dead and you're trying to maintain your dead life by, you know, killing people. But the notion that, okay, you're a mutant, and because you're a mutant, it pulls you into the sub-dimension, and your way out is through other people. So it's like, which is more important, you or the other person? Or, you know, or like, why is the other person's life more important than m life, except for the fact that m looks so horrific? And, you know, that's why he had the breathing device and stuff. It was all about him trying to stay in this world with us. Okay. So wow. the idea was to make him a very tragic tragic villain like you know not unlike uh magneto at his most tragic when he's not holding clothes for the new mutants they're mm-hmm. sneaking out the back window i don't even know when the last time i even heard of implate ever showing up on on anything <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure that he had a story in the hickman era of gen uh, of x-men somewhere i can't remember but he did show up briefly but anyway, yeah i know yeah. The, the hickman stuff too he really brings back uh sync and his you know on the usefulness of his powers of yeah. things as well. Well, and Mondo too. X-Men. Yep. And that's the thing too, real quick. Mondo's in this, but we get nothing from Mondo in this entire volume, it feels like. He's <laughs> in it and he shows up and he does 
and he's there, we get very little like information or even get to see him really use his powers. He got the really cool powers, but he's just kind of just a part of the group. Like he doesn't yeah. really get involved too much. This is my problem with Mondo is that they built him up in all of the previews. Mm -hmm. All of the previews had Mondo stuff. He got a toy in the action figure line. He played a huge role in Generation Next in Age of Apocalypse. And then once he actually joins the team, he does nothing. And it's the biggest disappointment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's bad, bad planning or something. I don't know. But I mean, Mondo does have a major storyline coming up um, leading up to the 25th issue, which we'll get to in the third or toward the end of this volume and in, th in the third volume. But it's not satisfying, in my opinion. Yeah, this has been way more focused on Monet, which is great because I love her character and I love her reveal. But he gets kind of left in the shafts after the big like reveal and his big introduction and the big party that they make for him. And then it's just like, OK, well, we're just going to keep moving forward. <laughs> the other person we get some back history for is, is Jonathan. He meets yep. up with Gail, and Gail is a woman in a wheelchair, and of course, they have a history together, and I think it's implied that the accident that destroyed Chamber's body also put Gail into a wheelchair. They don't explicitly say that, but I'm pretty sure that's where the tension comes from. Um, however, he gets suckered into uh, getting too close to Gale, and we find out that Gale is under Emplate's influence, and she has one of Emplate's mouth hands, and she sticks it into the chamber in order to siphon his energy and, and destroy him or something like that. And then she stands up from her wheelchair. So, like, this, this is a very mystery character. We don't really know anything about her. She shows up in a wheelchair in the next issue again. So, like, does she actually need the wheelchair? No clue. Yeah, does she just stand up for like a moment? Is she is she really you know confined? Like it's 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 really kind of hard to tell in this issue what's going on with her in that situation. But you're right; they do really hint that that kind of like with Rogue and how she you know kissed her boyfriend and 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 you know almost killed him. The same idea here is that when Chamber's power is manifested, like he did damage to her as well. Yeah, totally. Okay, two more things here that I have to mention is that yep. one, uh, M and Banshee have a conversation and Banshee confronts M about these spells that she's been having. She has moments where she just kind of goes into a catatonic state and no one can move her. We haven't really seen that in the last couple of issues, but she did it once in the first issue. Uh, and then she did it again in like the, I think the fifth issue when they were visiting New York. They, they, she just stood frozen in the, in the sidewalk and they couldn't move her. And so Banshee's confronting her about her spells. And this is something that uh, she was alluding to in the... I think she also did it once, too, in that issue where they were in that fairy tale land with the dragons and stuff. And were... Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yep, that's true. And then she also did it in the Phalanx storyline at the very beginning um, in the X-Men issues. So she's done it a number of times, enough that mm -hmm. we can see that there's a pattern and they're going to try and get to the bottom of that. And that won't be you know, discovered or we won't come to a conclusion about that till... I don't know, like the 20, the, maybe the 27th or 28th issue. I can't remember. Somewhere around there. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing I want to mention is that uh, back at home, Penance, for, I guess she's out of the, the hospital bed now because she's just running around the the campus. They, they didn't mention that at all, that she's better, but she's up and about. And Emma Frost is trying to read her mind but she has to do it carefully and let penance approach without her knowing and so penance gets close enough that emma can read her mind and she sees 
scenes of war, like with soldiers and tanks. Well, that's one thing I wanted to point out about this too, Curtis, is that I don't think Emma was just casually trying to read her mind. You can see it in here that she straight up like assaults her mentally. Right. Yes. To invade her mind. And that's something I wanted to bring up too, because we start seeing that later down the road is Emma is just totally open about just invading people's minds without their permission or, or anything like that. It's, she, she has no privacy at all with people. Like she go throughout this whole uh, volume a lot. We'll see her just taking taking control and invading people's minds. And this is one thing here. Again, she, she wants to try and make penance or penny that they call her, make her comfortable to try and get her to open up. But then at the same time, it's this assault. And then, like you said, we get all these flashes of war, which can't be helpful for, for any kind of friendship or relationship building between Emma and Penance or any kind of trust. Yeah. They really show off the contrast between Professor X and how he leads as a telepath mm -hmm. between how Emma leads as a telepath. Yeah. they And her, of course, having the villain background definitely has a different point of view of how telepathy and mind reading should work. And then we get the really bad coloring in the uh, the restaurant. Oh, yes, we sure do. Man, it's just... <laughs> It's just terrible, uh, oversaturated and, and washed out in a lot of cases. And Jubilee's skin, in fact, is so like pale yellow. It's it's kind of uh, embarrassing. <laughs> I know what you mean by that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, I think this seeing Penance running around reminds me that one of the conversations in the annual that that Moira McTaggart uh, was having with Banshee it was about Penance, and she was saying that the reason why Penance's skin is rock, like diamond razor sharp, is because it's constantly contracting on itself. And it, that's why she's you know, always in pain. That's why she's been put in, a, like her body's gone into shock. And that's why she was in a coma is because her skin is, is contracting so hard that it's becoming so tight and so smooth that it's essentially razor sharp. And that's uh, the, what calling herself penance is very interesting because is that a punishment that is being placed on her? And so it's a concept that they don't explore at all, but I thought it was an interesting note of her character. Interesting too, because there's another character down the road that becomes Penance. That's right. Yeah, with Speedball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah, uses the same the same body, and I guess the same thing happens. Uh, yeah, very interesting. Okay, love this last uh, splash page where oh, we yeah. see oh yeah, this two page splash here at the end. Yep. Yeah, this is great. All of the bad, all of the, the all of the team kind of being held against their will up in the air with fire around them reminds me of uh, what is the issue of X-Men where the X-Men are floating upside down. Um, I can't remember. It's one of the classic Claremont uh, I was issues. thinking of the Fantastic Four John Byrne issue with, uh, with Diablo. Yes. And they're all kind of tied up like spikes and stuff. In, yeah, in yeah, yeah, yeah. That too. too. Well. Totally. And then we show off the new team of villains that Emplate has been gathering, and we don't know any of their names except we recognize one of them, Vincent. This this purple guy with these like body tattoos is a character who was on the Generation Next team in the Age of Apocalypse. Oh, I just I didn't realize that until you just mentioned that. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And he he shows up right here, and I remember when. Uh, when I, when these first issues came out, when I was collecting them as they were coming out, and it's like, because Age of Apocalypse was such a big deal, I read those issues hundreds of times, maybe not hundreds, but many, many times. And so I was well familiar with Vincent, and he was um, like a light blue turquoise color in that book. But then he's the same, he's got the same powers, the, the turning into mist and with the same body tattoos and stuff, but he's a bad guy now. And I thought he was an original character. 
from Generation Next, which he was, but Scott Lobdell decided to put him into this storyline as well. We're going to see him play up a big role in the next issue. I wonder how far advanced that was. I would love to ask Scott Lobdell something like that. Like yeah. with Vincent, like was was he already kind of an idea of being a part of Implate and his his band of you know a bad guys, or did that just kind of happen, or is this organic? Like I wonder how that kind of came about. Yeah, but we get a big reveal on this double page spread too. Yes, what does that reveal? Big reveal here is Implate in front of the fire uh, looks at Monet and calls her little sister. There we go. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was revealed also in the conversation earlier that's, that Sean was having with M. He said, I don't really know much about you. I know that you have an older brother and two younger sisters who are twins, right? And then M gets obviously disturbed by that and runs away. And now we find out she was disturbed because her older brother happens to be the guy who attacked them in the airport earlier. Emplate. Big reveal. Everything's connecting. All those dots are coming together. But that's not the big secret. That's not the secret about M that we've oh, no. been hinting about. That's just part of it. This is a this is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, moving on to issue number 13. I got to say I love this cover by Chris Pacello, who is just like a little box in there. And uh, it's just the face of Emplate kind of in the shadow with his glowing eyes. Looks very, very cool. I like how, um, and we'll see it later on when, when Chris returns, how he does these background effects with all these X's, all these X-Men X's. Yeah. Because um, I've met him before and I did a signing with him before. I mean, he like autographs like Generation X books. He'll just doodle all these different like X's and circles all over the cover for you as cool. well. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah th- th- this is one of the other issues that gets plagued with this weird washed out brownie red oh. muddy color all over it. And it just looks It's really awful. bad on this first page. Yeah. I mean, I guess they could kind of explain it off that, oh, it's supposed to be the lighting from the fire, but it's just, it just doesn't work. But it when you work. compare it to the actual issue, like it looks, it just looks terrible. So it's it's not good. So this issue is called, it's all relative because we're talking about relatives, of course. And M, uh, M-Plate has tied up all of the team and is holding M hostage. He His plan is he's just going to siphon all of the powers of these characters because this is something that we also didn't know is that when he does siphon them we thought he just used it to to gain strength but he actually absorbs the the properties of their powers and can use them for himself and i guess we kind of knew that because he shares some resemblance physical resemblance to penance but he seems to have absorbed husk's powers and he's now ripping his chest and like transforming his chest underneath so that i guess maybe he doesn't need the respirator anymore though the respirator is kind of his signature look so it he's not getting rid of that anytime soon i think it just makes him stronger right does he does he actually like change his skin well i don't like, know i mean he... you can see that he's ripping he's ripping his uh his chest there and right. the the dialogue he says Oh no! Yeah, where is that d- dialogue that he says? Oh, okay. It's on. It's on the next page. It's the first panel on the next page, and he goes. Uh, but from where I stand, I'm the one who needs the least amount of help. After dining on even the slightest sliver of them, I've already possessed the diamond heart skin of penance and the metamorphing power of husk. And the metamorphing power of husk. Yeah. So, so he does gain their their properties. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not even terribly certain. I even want to sup on skins, jeans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great line. Okay, so on the splash page, in the opening splash page, 
Mplate says, when I first encountered these future snacks at the airport in Generation X number one, um, I genu genuinely hadn't made the connection between myself and Monet. He puts Monet in quotes. Monet, she's not who she says she is, which Monet also referred to herself as her current incarnation. He says, but you knew immediately, didn't you, Monet? So yeah, she knew instantly. And we could tell in that first issue that she knew something about Emplate that she wasn't saying. But now we find out that he is her older brother. And obviously he's changed his look. He doesn't look at anything like her older brother, but M still knew. Somehow she knew. So that's cool. Uh, through this issue here, M runs away. She escapes because she's super strong. She escapes and uh, goes to call for help because it gets attacked by some of the, the goons that M played has hired. One of them is called Bulwark. He's a giant German supervillain. He speaks in, with like some German words through his English sentences. And Bulwark itself is a German word for like a big strong wall. And so, yeah, he they start pounding it out, which seems like a fair fight because M is also super strong. But I love this moment when he they go into the biosphere and Leech takes away Bulwark's powers, which just means his powers are his bulk. So he becomes a skinny guy and he runs away. <laughs> Didn't know that that's exactly how Leech's powers work, but that's kind of cool. He's a very odd character. Like, he's a big buff guy, but it's like he's just covered in belts and straps. <laughs> yeah, very like S&M kind of. <laughs> So did you notice that they gave RD and Leech the wrong speech bubbles? I was wondering about that because I, like, I was like, is that right? I thought it was the other one that, that projects the the images in his, in his speech bubbles. Exactly. So yeah, it made me gaslight myself. I was like, am I, was I wrong the whole time? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, Leech, Leech is the one with the with the green skin and he's the one who yeah. takes away the powers and he can talk. Yeah, and yeah. Artie's the purplish pink one that projects his words as, as pictures in the air. So it's the artist here that gave Leech the wrong projection like it shows leech projecting a lollipop it's like he's a sucker and but it should be Artie that's projecting that so i guess the letterer came along and he, since he's like oh that's the one who's doing the projecting it must be the other one who's doing the talking so he made Artie be the one who talks but that's completely wrong it should be the other way around and it's not that they got the color wrong because leech has no nose so we know for sure that this one is leech because he's got no nose and they colored him right they colored him green they just gave him the wrong power and I love how they're just in like a tank top and a backwards hat and oversized <laughs> X-Men shirt. Very, very 90s here, like straight out of Boy Meets World or something. Yep. Uh, okay, so M has a little moment where she kind of feels guilty that she's kept the family shame a secret, but then she gets caught up by the mists of Vincent. No, I, I forget, Curtis. Was she at the airport in Generation X 1? Like, yes, it was yes, just she was. the first time we see him together with Implate. Okay. Nope, she was there. Uh, and I think the dialogue that he says, I, I didn't make the connection when I saw you at the airport earlier. Uh, I think that would, maybe it could be a retcon that Scott Lobdell was working into the dialogue there uh, because he certainly didn't acknowledge her presence at all. Um, but then also, if he's never seen her look the way she does, then he then that would make sense too. But right. who knows? So anyway, the the last page here, Bishop shows up to help save the day. And this is great. Yeah, because when Monet ditches out, she see her kind of tinkering with the alarm system. Yeah, she kind of calls for help. So Bishop came. And this is kind of the, the very, I mean, I guess we've had a guest star, Wolverine guest star before, but we haven't had really any other X-Men show up to, to talk or anything like that. So this is kind of the first big acknowledgement of the, the X-Men um, associating with Generation X. 
Yeah, I love I love Bishop showing up on here. Yep. I thought it was interesting though that oh, that they, they they had to call in one of the big guns to help them out. That's great. Yeah. Let's talk about the next issue here, issue number fourteen. Okay, so I love this issue 14 here. I just love this this first little splash page of things with Jubilee hanging upside down. But yeah, what this basically is, this is the, the big fight between the Generation X characters and M-Plates and his band of, you know, bad dudes as well. Um, a lot of fun stuff here with Bishop that we get. As we go through this, we'll talk about it. But, you know, we get things with Sync and um, what happens when he gets attacked by M-Plate. Um, and that's kind of like the gist of this story really is just the end fight. And then it, it leads us into the next issue when we get Sink who, uh, who becomes possessed with uh, plates powers. And that kind of moves us into that, that next issue. But this one here is just a really fun, just kind of overall kind of fight scene, you know, drawn out throughout the entire issue here. But I like the beginning part here, Curtis, where it's just, <laughs> it's just Jubilee hanging upside down and just insulting Implate as much as possible. <laughs> just yep. give, giving him just as much, you know, teenage sass to yes. Implate. And we'll see that later because she she does this to kind of upset him because she's he's absorbing her powers as well. And she real and she knows that when she gets upset or kind of um, you know, gets a little high strung, she loses control of her powers. And that's kind of the option they have here of taking down M plates as well. Totally. Yeah, it's a great strategy. And she something she does here in this issue and something she does in one of the next issues that we're talking about is that she shows off her experience. Um, because she's been with the X-Men for a while, and then she's put with this group of beginners, but she's been around the block. So it's like, yeah, she purposely allows M-Plate to suck on her genes because she knows that it will cause a distraction. And that's a really neat strategy, actually. I mean, it's it's a brave strategy because that can't be a, you know, it can't be a, a an easy thing to do to let him attack her like that. Yeah, and then we get um, we get Murmur, who is one of the members of Implates. Uh, we didn't get anything from him in the last issue, but in like barely kind of being in the background of things. But he's like this uh, character wrapped up like a mummy with a with a mouth on his chest, and then he has the big fight with uh, with Bishop and M. I kind of think that the mouth, you know, that when when Implate possesses people, they get little mouths on their hands. I wonder if right. Implate has a mouth on his chest as well that the respirator kind of sits on, and this is how it how the possession shows itself in uh, in this guy murmur he's got a mouth an emplate mouth on his chest i don't know because murmur is a totally new character we've that yep. has never existed before and i don't know if murmur we get no information about him other than him just fighting <laughs> yeah. yeah same with vincent like we get vincent here he's a part of the big fight with with bishop as well um and you get a really cool uh sequence here when um vincent who turns into mist and invades uh bishop's body like bishop breathes him in and Bishop has the ability where he just absorbs energy and then kind of just outputs it out. So you get like this really cool sequence of him doing that to to try and fight off Vincent. So Bishop's still a pretty new character at this point, right? Because he when did he appear? Ninety two, I think, or was it ninety one? Ninety one or ninety two? I think it might have been ninety one because he's a Will Spatashio character right. that was before Image. So yeah, ninety ninety one. Yeah. So he's been around for a few years, I guess. This is by this point we're in nineteen ninety six. This is when he has the cool shaved head look too. He doesn't have like the the Jerry curl anymore. That's right, um, but he still hasn't figured out the mystery that he came back in time to solve. Who is the traitor of the X Men? So he makes a mention to that in this issue i still haven't figured out who the traitor is 
And I don't think it'll be much longer before they reveal that. That happens like 90, not 99 maybe or something like that. Or is it before? Well, you no, know, even, even before that, because this is, that's Onslaught is the whole traitor thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you get Onslaught mentioning throughout this too. Right. Yeah. That's coming up in, I think in the next issue here. Yeah. Okay. Mondo uses his powers once in this issue and he just turns into the ground and it's so cool it that, looks I mean, this is so cool you get to see him it looks cool for anybody who doesn't know mondo just kind of just he could take on the properties of whatever kind of element near him like a tree or a wall or water or mist or or, or whatever and it's really cool looking especially doing that generation next uh, age of apocalypse stuff but yeah we finally get a little bit of that here but he doesn't do anything with it he is <laughs> just absorbs in the ground and that's it there's nothing else so, yeah, he doesn't throw a punch. He doesn't nothing. like you know trap anybody. Yeah. It's just you get like these two panels with him as a green green creature. Okay, one more thing I want to mention here is the um, almost at the very end of the issue, Penance confronts Emplate, and Emplate says, "You betrayed me. The first time you left me, I accepted it that it wasn't of your own accord. I forgave you, Yvette. I forgave you." So he calls her by name, Yvette. That's the only little bit of information that we know about penance from this far and uh that ends up being irrelevant like I, scott labdell had plans for penance that get derailed once he leaves the book so the fact that he calls her yvette is in line with labdell's original plans for the character but don't end up being relevant to what actually happens to penance in the future which we won't give away at this point okay yeah ultimately the story was going to be that i want to say you Yvette, was that her name? I don't remember. That's uh, the name in the collector's preview. Okay, so Yvette was a Yugoslavian war orphan. Okay. And the idea is that she was deaf, and because she was deaf, there's that scene in the beginning of uh, Generations where, um, I think it was the second issue where, or maybe third issue, where uh, Jubilee is trying all these different languages on her, and she won't respond to any of them. Right. And so it's like, well, where is she from? Where is she from? And it turns out she's deaf. And even when, uh, what's her name, uh, Emma goes into her head, she can't figure it out because she doesn't have a frame of reference. She doesn't have any, she doesn't understand language. So oh, yeah. Emma didn't realize it at the time, but what that meant was, you know, Emma just couldn't figure out, like, what the fuck is going on inside this person's head. But really what it was is that she had no basis for, you know, being able to communicate. So the idea of words meant nothing to her so you know and so identifying things by words meant nothing to her because she didn't even have this concept of like oh that is a chair or that is a you know whatever the word for chair is in Yugoslavia wow and so that was and also like you know the idea of that her power we were going to find out was kind of like a the mutant equivalent of a porcupine in the sense that she didn't quite understand the world so she needed to keep the world at a distance and that's why she had all those uh that's why her power is such that if you touched her, you would slice your hand off or something. Mm. Yep. And then the uh, the issue ends here with, you see a very uh, mean, angry looking sink. Yeah. He's been possessed by Emplate. So that's something that if you hadn't been paying attention, sink is not in these last two issues at all. Uh, when they're first caught, we see Sync in that lineup of all of the Generation X people and behind the fire or whatever. But then in the following issue and in, and in this issue, yeah, he's not there at all. And if you weren't looking or paying attention, you wouldn't notice that he's just not present. But at the very end, we say, oh, yeah, Sink is missing. Hmm, where did he go? M says, be even before the battle began, my brother knew that he'd be unable to defeat Sink. 
Everett's biokinetic aura could ultimately cancel out Emplate's power over time, unless the monster Emplate made sure that Sink Enough was far away that he couldn't counterattack. So he is sent under the influence of Emplate. Emplate has sent Sink to St. Louis to confront his family, Sink's family, either to recruit them or to kill them. So we're going to find out what that means in the next issue. And that's one thing I've noticed about the, a lot of these issues here is Scott Liddell does a great job of having like an A, B, C kind of storylines running yep. through at all times. But there's really no like end. If things just kind of fix themselves or things just kind of just happen to fall into place. Like with this, like we don't see Sink get like separated from the crowd or, or from the group or, or anything like that. Right. Yeah. It was like you said, like if you, didn't, if you weren't paying attention, if you didn't even notice or you were looking for it or anything like that, you didn't realize that Sink was gone during yeah. this whole thing. Well, yeah, there's just so much going on with so many villains and so many heroes <laughs> that like, yeah, one of them's missing. I'm not, not too sure about that. But anyway, so we're going to go on to issue number 15. It's called Death in the Family. And, uh, oh yeah, we forgot to mention that last issue was drawn by Pascal Ferry. It wasn't even a Tom Grummet issue. It was a fill-in. So, a fill-in of a fill-in. You know, it was it, the, the work tended to come a little bit more sporadically, you know, because we were ch- jump, jumping around working with different artists. And of course, you know, when you're, a, when you're coming in to fill in on a book, and just do an issue or two or a short run. Usually, there's there's a bit of time that's that's needed to get used to the characters and to kind of get yourself into the right mindset for the material that you're now working with. So it does tend to build in more delay. So I did find that during that period, it was much more common that I would get a bunch of pages through, but I wouldn't get the full issue because. Okay. especially being in the UK. So, you know, a couple of days to get to me and then a couple of days for the artwork to get back again. You know, it quite often that was enough of a lag that if things weren't running to schedule like they would have been uh, with, with with Chris and I working together, it, it was necessary for some pages to go to other, uh, you know, to other inkers. But that's fine. You know, you, you know, when you do that kind of work, you also find that occasionally bits and pieces of other books come to you that you weren't expecting because they know that you're sitting waiting for something, you know, so I, you know, all of a sudden I get a page or two or cable or something like that would appear and it's like, okay, we need your help. So, you know, that's just the kind of the nature of the way the, the business tends to run when you're working in a big, big publisher like Marvel or DC and you're doing, you know, inking, coloring work, lettering, you, you, you quite often find that, you know, there's a bit more fluidity between books. So we're back to Tom Grummet in this issue here with uh, Sink in the family home. And we get to learn a little bit about his his history here. And he lives in St. Louis. It says a little bit about his parents. It says Ida and Stan Thomas have considered themselves fortunate, each of them successful in their chosen fields. They, along with their only son, have tried to share that good fortune with others, opening their home and hearts to a handful of foster children with special needs. So that's kind of cool. And one of the kids that uh, Sinks is with in the beginning here is one of the foster kids. It looks like just a, a, an infant. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even catch that when we uh, first got introduced to Sink during like the Phalanx Covenant stuff. Like he just kind of just showed up. So we get some. This is all backstory for Sink in these next, I think, two issues, right? So yeah. Yep. Uh, and then the police officer who comes. So Sink causes a ruckus, and he's under an influence. And the parents come and confront him, and then he jumps out the window because he doesn't. He's fighting with himself. He doesn't want to hurt his parents. 
So they call the police, and the and they the police assumes that Sink or Everett, their son Everett, is in jail because he must be because he's kind of a black thug. Um, and you know his parents are like, I don't like what you're implying, detective. And so they have to battle that. Uh, but then Emma and Banshee come in, and Emma uses her mind powers to tell the guys to go away like you were saying she has no problem with taking over their minds <laughs> yeah. uh, meanwhile m husk and jubilee are outside looking around to figure out where to find sink so it's kind of cool they've left these three to take on sink and they find him in an old gymnasium and they have to try and battle him but because he's sink and this is kind of the first time we've seen this he uses his powers to the fullest ability and takes on all three of their powers at once. And this is where we're going to see in the next issue what was going to happen here. But that's that's cool. I, I like that they're focusing on Sync because he's kind of been given the short end of the stick in the storytelling department for the since the beginning, kind of. So it's really nice to have an, a storyline that focuses specifically on him. Yeah, and a lot of backstory. You know, he was... I mean, he was well-loved in his family. Yep. And he seemed to be well-respected in school. Like, he's kind of friends with the janitor. Uh, and, you know, that all becomes a part of the, the storyline with this. I like how it also mentions that when his powers manifested, his parents supported him and wanted to do everything that they could to help him out. And that's why they connected him at Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, so that he could learn to control the powers. And because X-Men has always been an analogy for for bigotry and, and racism, the fact that this black family, and it's emphasized by this police officer who tr treats them uh, in a very prejudiced way, uh, the Thomas family were not prejudiced toward their son when they found out he was a mutant. Yeah. Or even um, they're they're a they're a foster host family, and you see that they have like different race of kids that they're fostering as well. Yes, yep, exactly. Yeah, so I like that sort of connection to the history of of the X Men there. Uh, one other note for this one that I have is you've mentioned this already. Chamber is starting to feel a little woozy. He says something's wrong. I saw his face. I, um, he says, I saw his face. I know I know. I did. And then Gate Me took me away. Why can't I remember? Onslaught. I. Why would he erase my memory of what he looked like unless the ruddy plonker thought I'd recognize him? And there's a little caption note. It happened in X-Men number 19, which I wish they would have included at least a little subplot page there so we could have seen that happen in this book. But X-Men 49. Or 40, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 49. Of course, yeah. yeah the, the font on this is hard to read yep. sometimes, yeah. So yeah, there you go. This is the, the beginning to a multi-part story that's going to stretch through the rest of this volume of psychic characters being affected by Onslaught. Chamber being one, of course, uh, Emma being another. And that's about the extent of their involvement with the, the Onslaught storyline. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, like you know, they did a really good, good job of not getting these characters out of their story and get intertwined in some big fiasco with the rest of the X-Men storylines. Yeah, that's right. Okay, last issue we're going to talk about in this episode. All right, so final issue here. This is, again, this is the... I love the cover, but this is the kind of culmination of this storyline with Sync being possessed by M-Plate. 
Oh yeah, this is a Joe Mad cover. Sorry, we should. Yeah, we should, Joe Mad. Yeah, someone has to cover the book too. Same yeah. with uh, the previous issue. They're both Joe Mad covers, and I remember uh, being super excited about that because uh, he was making a big splash over in Uncanny X Men. It's like cool that he gets to draw the Gen X characters. Oh, I didn't even notice that he did the cover for uh, for fifteen. Yeah, very cool. I could tell sixteen. I could tell right away, but fifteen, I couldn't. That's really cool. Right yeah. on. But yeah, so this is the end of this of this storyline. It's Emma and um, Banshee kind of show up here. Um, and Emma's getting affected by the onslaught kind of uh, psychic connections. We get a lot more of the psychic uh, issues going on with Chamber, um, his relationship. Him and him and Skin become like best buddies throughout this series, and it really yeah. kind of you, you see it really kind of forming forming here of things. But yeah, so this issue it's Sink basically taking out the school, his old high school. It's the janitor trying to talk him out of it, how he's such a great kid. You get um it's it's a big fight between him and Husk. Husk, you get a little bit more explanation of Husk's powers where she peels her skin off too soon, that it becomes like this really weird, transparent, um, like she's metal, but you can still see her skeleton beneath her. It says that it's a process which requires a modicum of concentration as Paige must struggle to choose each subsequent form, but cut, caught unawares husking before the transition is complete can prove to be very revealing and, and very dangerous. It's like taking a, a cake out of the oven before it's done. Yeah, that's that's a good analogy. There you go. Exactly. So that's uh, that's very interesting to see to see that happen there. Um, one of my favorite moments in this issue here is toward the beginning when um, Jubilee realizes that because her powers are uh, long range powers, they can't get near Sync. The, uh, Husk says, let's go after him. And Jubilee says, wait, I'm not going. And I think you two should split up Husk. Husk taking the lead. See, the farther away I get from Sync, the faster he loses the opportunity to glom onto my power. So she realizes that if she's not there, Husk and M can actually get close to Everett and take him out. Yeah. And, she, and this is a great uh, example of her becoming a well, like, field leader yeah. as well. So you, you get that aspect of her, too, because, you know, she she has all the experience with the X-Men, but she was always just kind of a, a background character in, in any kind of events or fights. But this one, she's she's assuming some kind of control and saying, hey, I need to stay back because if he sinks my powers, things are going to get really bad. So you guys who are super strong and can fight him off, you go ahead and lead the fight and I'll stay back here and do some long range attacks. Yes, I love how Lobdell is developing her character. And as as he does through the Age of Apocalypse storyline, it's really, really great. And unfortunately, um, once, especially once Jay Ferber gets onto the book way later on in the series, he de-ages her to be like a very young 13 and like just a whiny, immature brat of a character. And all of that character development disappears, which is a real shame. But it's what yeah. happens sometimes. And then, um, yeah, so as you go through this and they, they finally fight off and, and, and defeat uh, Everett, you know, they don't really fight him off, but they kind of kind of they kind of help him break his connection with with Emplate. Um, and then, like I was saying before, we get <laughs> this is fun because we get a sink and uh, and chamber who kind of go off on a, on a on a road trip together. And this is the start of that. But it gets interrupted here at the very end with. <laughs> One of my just nostalgic characters from 90s X-Men is the reveal here of the Executioner showing up. Mm -hmm. Executioner is a character that doesn't show up very often. 
I don't know if I see him much after after this. Like, yeah, I don't think he's ever really been in like not even that Generation X is a main X Men line, but never like in any kind of main X Men issues after anything like this here. Exactly. Man, yeah, fun. I don't think so. Um, okay, yeah, let me see here. I have two more things I want to say. One is that, yeah, you've yep. mentioned Skin and Chamber taking off here, meeting up with Executioner. They are trying to get to Xavier's because Xavier must be able to help him with it, since it's a psychic-related issue, must yep. be able to help him out. So they, this begins a road trip that's going to take them through the next several issues. And running into more and more cool characters that we'll get into later. Exactly, as well. that's right. <laughs> and then also the 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 climax of this whole fight with Sync is between Sync and M. And M says, "If you're going to fight me, then synchronize your your aura to my abilities." And he says, "I already have." No, you haven't. That that's only the after effect of my mutant power. Try again. Push yourself. Learn why my brother was never able to feast on my genetic marrow. And then the, the text says, he does try. As the boy named Everett Thomas reaches out with his aura, seeking to tap into the mutant energies of his somewhat enigmatic teammate, looking for purchase within her genetic resonance, his face betraying his shock and horror as the truth unfolds before him. And he yells out in pain. That's just more of the mystery. We don't know. They don't say why that happened, but we'll find out yeah, later. They're, they're really dragging this M stuff out, <laughs> which is fun. because it, It's bits and pieces, and it's really interesting when it does get revealed. But most of that part, is, I think, is in the next volume of things because we kind of just get the basic, uh, oh, you know, it's this kind of thing going on. That's right. Yeah. Again, don't want to say much until we actually get into it in the story itself. But yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our episode today. Next time yes. we have an episode, we're going to start with issue 17. And we made this break particularly because issue number 17 is the long-awaited return of Chris Pacello. So we thought we'd get all of the rest of his issues kind of leading up to the, the 25th issue uh, in one episode here. Ah, boy. Probably we could just spend the whole time just, just, just talking about how amazing just his art gushing is about it. Series. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Gabe. This was great. These are, there's a lot of great issues here and a lot of a lot of fun conversation and stuff to talk about. And I appreciate you joining me for this one as well. Oh, no. Thank you, Curtis. This, I, I never get the opportunity to talk much about fun 90s comics like this. And Generation X is just... Like you, like you mentioned before, it's just such an underappreciated series. So yep. it's glad that I get to be a part of this with you to kind of bring this into the spotlight. Awesome. Uh, why don't you tell all of our listeners about uh, your own online adventures? Yeah. So you guys can follow me um, on Instagram. It's uh, Gabe Loves 90s Comics because my name's Gabe and I love 90s comics. Makes sense to me. And on YouTube, I am a part of the uh, Omni Bros Live YouTube channel. So you can find me on there as well. Awesome. That, that's fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of great content over there, a lot of great discussion. Like you said, not as many 90s conversations as they probably should have, but <laughs> you'll take what you can get. Yeah, you know, they don't put out a lot of 90s omnibuses or even like epics. You know, they are more and more. We talked about that kind of pre-show. Um, so when that opportunity comes up and I get a chance to talk about it, epics and stuff like that, I'm in it. I'm there for it. There we go. Awesome. Okay, everybody, you can also follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, and I even now have a Substack you can try to search for if you go to curtisfindley.substack.com. It's a weekly newsletter where I talk about comic-related stuff, and it's free to sign up. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. Appreciate it, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye.